Hello and welcome. This is David Shirley from Irish Funds. On the 11th of November, we held our first in-person event in almost two years with the 8th Irish Funds UK Symposium in London. It was a full-day agenda and attracted a very healthy audience of 500 people, which I think demonstrated the appetite that people have for meeting in person again after a very challenging period, which, of course, admittedly, is not yet over. So over the next couple of weeks, we will bring you some audio highlights from this event. And first up today is the keynote address from Oliver Etienne of HSBC in Jersey. Oliver provided a fascinating and courageous insight into living and working with an adult autism diagnosis, how it affects his everyday life and how he is using his diagnosis to educate his colleagues and peers and help create a more inclusive and understanding workplace for him and others with this condition. I'm sure you'll enjoy this episode and check back soon for more great content. Good morning, everybody. Um, my name is Oliver Etienne. I work at HSBC. Um, I've been working for HSBC for the past almost eight years now, um, and I work in a little island called Jersey. Um, I was diagnosed with autism in 2018, uh, and part of what I've been doing for the last three years is trying to educate people about autism within the finance industry whilst learning about my own autism at the same time, because I always find that it's best to be able to teach people as you're learning at the same time, because otherwise you forget about what, what it is that you've learned. I, I apologize if I do run out of the room, but this is quite nerve wracking for me and I might get quite emotional talking about some of these topics. Um, so if I run out, it's nothing to do with you. It's just the situation's got a bit too much. Uh, I'm going to start off by telling you about why I needed to get my diagnosis. Uh, so back in the summer of 2017, um, our work had just gone through a restructure, um, and I had been changed manager. So my, I, I was with one manager, and they moved me somewhere else. At that time, I had my own specific role. Um, they, they realized my talent um, and analytical skills quite early at the bank and they wanted to maximize that. So I was put in charge of our client risk from a relationship management point of view, just to make sure that we could do the reviews and get them all through first time, because we know what relationship managers are like. They don't always like getting everything right straight away and they'll just ping anything through. Um, luckily, they, um, the, the role fit me very well and I, I was succeeding in it. However, when I moved, to the new manager, uh, it took about three one-to-ones until she had told me that I was going to change roles, that I was going back to the general role of what I was doing, so my entire job was going to change. We had two previous one-to-ones where I had been told I was sticking with the risk role because I, I was doing so well. It came a bit as a bit of a shock to me because from my point of view, you can't overnight make that decision. If you're going to change someone's job, you've been thinking about that ever since you took them on. It's not something that's a snap decision. So for the rest of that one-to-one, -one, I'd say it's about 30 minutes or so, I, I just went blank. I didn't hear anything she said. It could have been the best one-to-one -one conversation with that manager ever, but I just didn't hear it. I was just getting so angry. And as soon as I finished that one-to-one, -one, I ran outside of my building 
and I had my first meltdown I'd had since I left school. This meltdown was a physical one. I went outside and I started punching walls because I just needed to get some kind of release. When I, after the meltdown, I went back into the office and this is the moment that HSBC changed my life. One of our senior managers brought me into a room. She, she could see that I, I had been doing something quite aggressive outside, obviously, because you, you've got bruises on your hands, you've got cuts. And she just asked me what was wrong. I explained everything to her, exactly what had happened up to that point. And because I had a friend who's autistic, she had told me that the first moment she saw me, she could tell I was autistic. So at this point, I, I said, look, I think I'm autistic. This was the time, this, I decided, I suddenly decided that this was the time I needed to get my diagnosis. I can't afford to have meltdowns in work. You know, I, I could punch a member of staff, I could destroy property, and I don't even know I'm doing that. When, when, you've got, when you're having a meltdown, all you see is red and you just, nothing. You, you can't see anything, you just lash out at whatever's near. And so I spoke um, with my GP and he looked at my medical history. He had been my GP since I was born. And he agreed that I should go off for my diagnosis. So he wrote me a referral letter and that went to our health insurance provider because the waiting list in Jersey to get a diagnosis is 18 months, and I didn't want to wait 18 months to get something confirmed for which I already knew. So he wrote me the, the referral. I called the health provider, and they said to me that I had to go see a psychiatrist, and he, the psychiatrist then had to refer me to a psychologist to do the assessment. They did warn me, however, that I would, no long, I would not be able to access any mental health support with the health provider because they saw autism as a pre-existing condition and because you're 20% more likely being autistic to have mental health issues, that excluded you to get the support needed. So I walked into the psychiatrist's office, sat down and I said, I'm here for a, I'm here for a referral for autism. He goes, no, you're not. I said, yes, I am. He goes, no. You've, I, you walked into this room and I saw that you're suffering from anxiety and you're no way ready to get a diagnosis for autism. You've, you wrote in your referral to me that you do not, you're not eligible for psych support if you're diagnosed as autistic, so why would I give you a diagnosis? We spent about seven months before I got the referral on learning how I can deal with my anxiety how I will be able to cope being autistic without being able to get private psych psychiatric support because unfortunately psychi psychiatric support in our government in Jersey is, is quite hard to get unless you're already in the care system. But what he did offer me on, at my first call was something called a working diagnosis. So for all non-medical people, they have to assume that you are what this medical professional has said you are. So he called my uh, new manager at work and told her exactly how to treat me to kind of look after me. So, so one of the biggest things that he gave me is something called a sensory break. So what this is, is when I'm feeling overwhelmed, 
I can go outside of the office and just calm down without any judgment, without any fear of repercussions. There are people that will say, well, what do you think you're doing, Oliver? Why are you taking the piss by taking all these breaks? And I say, I'm taking these breaks so that I can be more productive. Everyone in senior management that's seen me work knows that when I'm in a good place, I'm probably one of the most productive people in my bank. But when I'm in a bad place, I am without doubt the least productive person you will see. So an extra five minutes every hour and a half enables me to probably pull out an extra one and a half times what someone else will do normally. Once I got my diagnosis, I thought it was time to actually look at me and look at what I had achieved in my life and seen where I could fit autism into this. So I think the biggest thing is, is something that really only triggered when COVID hit. And this is that my flat is my safe space. So when I'm out and about, if you're seeing me now, if I'm, if I'm in work, if I'm meeting new people, you, you will see a version of me. You will see a version of me that puts on a mask for the world. In my flat, it's the only time I can truly be myself. I've got no fear that anyone's going to judge me. And it's, it's a real safe space. When COVID hit and we went into lockdown, I had a dilemma. I had work, Oliver, that, that would appear to the working world and could be professional. I had home, Oliver. He's got absolutely no filter. He'll say what he wants, and he will snap out at anyone whenever he, he feels like it. And obviously, that, those two people should not be in the same room. But I had to make a decision whether I was going to allow my home version of me to, work, to be in work or make my safe space into a work environment, which meant I had no place to relax. Obviously, my home stayed my safe space. What this meant was that I was very short with people. I, I would respond to emails within 30 seconds. And I mean, you can imagine the kind of responses you get when, pe when people send you stupid questions, right? Um, so I learned very quickly that apologies are very good. <laughs> you just apologize, and a lot of people like it. Some people don't, and that's when the, the, the actual phone comes in, and you pick up the phone, and you say, look, I'm autistic. I'm at home. I've got no filter. I, I'm sorry for what I did, and then leave it at that. I also learned drafts are very good as well. You send that email. But you just press the X instead. It goes in your draft. You come back five minutes later, realizing you haven't sent it. And the whole email gets rewritten. Another thing that, that's important to me, and I get asked lots of questions around this, is I wear a jacket a lot. So I, if I'm in the office, I'm always wearing a jacket. It doesn't matter what type of jacket it is, I'm wearing a jacket. It can be 35, 40 degrees outside. I'm wearing a jacket. A lot of people come up to me and say, aren't you hot, Oliver? And I say, potentially. But the jacket for me is not being cold. A jacket, if you imagine like a baby, they've got like a, 
a little blanket that they snuggle up to. This, a jacket that I wear is a safety blanket. If you see me with a jacket, I'm scared. If you see me without a jacket, I'm actually in a really good place and I feel safe. I think in the last couple of years, I've only taken the jacket off three or four times. Every other time I'm wearing my jacket because I am not feeling safe to come off, to, to, to take it off. Um, so it's just like a, a little bit of added security for me. Another thing that I do is I assign people into boxes. So if you imagine my, my brain, it's filled with like, I don't know, 20 different boxes at any one time. And people are put into these boxes. So I'll give you an example of a few. You might have a box for your jokers. You've got a box for your managers, a box for mentors or advisors, the box for the people you trust, the box for the people you don't trust. The thing about this is that I don't understand people that well. So you could tell me a joke, and I won't find it funny, because you might not be in my joker box. So if I've got someone that's looking out for me at work, that's trying to progress my career at work, they would be probably in my mentor or my advisor box. Now, if we have proper work discussions, serious discussions there. And then if they want to tell me a joke, it will go down like a lead balloon. The same thing with a joker. If someone I always joke with starts having a serious conversation with me, I, I, wouldn't, find, I, I wouldn't see how that's funny because they're supposed to be funny towards me. I can't, people can't sit in more than one box because then I get really confused. Now, what the, the worst box I've got is for my untrustworthy people. Um, and this is the hardest box that anyone will ever get out of. And very few people are in there. The reason being is that trust is earned, right? I've grown up for my life knowing how to treat people. I wasn't autistic for 25 years of my life. I, I, I was like a neurotypical, right? Like everyone else, until I got my diagnosis. But I learned that in order to earn someone's trust, you have to give them some of your trust. And if you give someone your trust and they break it, they, they will sit in my untrustworthy box. But they've broken my trust, and that, for me, is a serious issue. So they can't get out of that box. It doesn't matter what they do. They'll stay in that box, which can damage relationships. I've had it before where a manager from five years ago becomes my manager again, and they're in that box, and you're like, OK. So I move them out of the box, and straight away they're back in it because they do something wrong again. <laughs> it's, it's, not, it's not great, but it's how I have to live. Everyone has to be somewhere because it doesn't, it doesn't work otherwise. <clears throat> Another difficulty that I've got is with nonverbal communication. So obviously, I'm speaking to you. I'm good at speaking to people. I can speak. I went to speech therapy twice when I was younger. I couldn't speak until I was three years old. And then I returned to speech therapy at age seven. Hence, I'm able to speak now. I think I speak quite well. Um, but unfortunately, nonverbal communication's got nothing to do with speaking. I can't read people. I can't understand 
the tone of their voice. I can't understand their facial expressions. The, the best way to describe this is, if you're speaking to me, imagine that you're writing me an email, and, or, or you're writing me a letter. And this happens with a lot of autistic people as well, that we can't recognize the nonverbal side of things. So whatever is getting said to us is in the context of the written form. So if you're using quite aggressive language towards us, you might use it in a really nice way. We think you're being aggressive towards us. So it, it's, all, it's always got to be carefully thought how you're going to speak with us, because we can't understand the nonverbal side of things. Um, so, so I thought that was something important to raise, because, because obviously we, we, we need to use nonverbal communication when we deal with people. So if you've got a percentage of the population that literally can't deal with the nonverbal, how are, we going, how are we going to do that to support them in future? Another thing, I don't have any emotional intelligence. What I mean by this is I can't understand emotions. It's not that I can't get emotional. It's, it's a very um, strong misconception that autistic people aren't, don't share emotions. I think we're more emotional than most people. The issue is we can't identify emotions. Uh, a good example of this is I was once, I once was sent off an email which upset someone. And my manager called me up and goes, Oliver, how do you think that person felt? I said, I don't know. They said, can you put yourself in their shoes? They saw that. How did they feel? I was like, I'm not sure. Yeah, just really think about this. Can you just tell me what, what, was, what do you think was going through their mind when they read that? And I was like, I don't know. How, how were they feeling? And he was getting quite angry with me. And I said, I don't know bad. And he goes, now why did they feel bad? And I said, because you're, you've come to me, so they can't have felt good, could they? I mean, you're not going to come to me to tell me off if they felt good. You're going to come to me because they felt bad, but I can't tell you why. And then he went through this whole reason as to why they would feel bad. I mean, at the end of the day, I still don't understand how they felt bad from what I sent, but it was a learning lesson. <laughs> um, since getting diagnosed, I've done a lot of work within HSBC talking to people about my autism. Um, I'm also doing some work with um, the main charity in Jersey, um, Autism Jersey. Um, I, I'm on their advisory council. Uh, a big part of what I do is I speak up about my autism because not enough people do. Someone told me once, if you're not going to do it, Oliver, who else will? And I just think that we need to be supportive. If, if you know anyone who's autistic, support them as much as you can to get them to speak out because we all, we all want to live in a better place. And unfortunately, the topic's not spoken about enough. Um, and just before I finish, I just want to give you a couple of nuggets of advice. Um, if you do know anyone who's autistic, or if, if you employ anyone that's autistic, OK? So firstly, I don't believe in you changing how you speak to someone who's autistic, right? That's not the way it should be. You need to change the way you speak to everyone like you're speaking to an autistic person. You know, that we live in a black and white world. You give me a task to do, you've got an idea on what this task needs to look like. 
when you give, if you give a normal person a task, give them free reign, what happens is at the end of it, you go, well, that's not what I wanted. And for me, if I got free reign, I'd, be, I'd probably do the complete opposite to what you wanted anyway. If you give me a detailed way of doing this, then suddenly I'll be able to understand it properly. And the whole world will. You, you'll, you'll save a lot of time by being able to explain exactly what you want the finished, finished article to look like. And my final point is that if you do know anyone who's autistic, just get to know them. I know time's a precious commodity, but if you can spare half an hour a week to learn that person, you'll know them better than they know themselves, and you'll know how to look after them properly. Thanks for your time, everyone. <laughs> <laughs>